Hi, and welcome to the State of Talk podcast, brought to you by the International Society for Conversation Analysis. I'm one of your hosts, Elliot Hoy, an assistant professor at the Free University of Amsterdam. In this episode, you'll hear an interview that I did with Stuart Eckberg, associate professor in the School of Psychology and Counseling at Queensland University of Technology and chief investigator at QUT's Center for Healthcare Transformation. Stuart has written extensively on social interactions across a variety of domains, including clinical, online, mundane, and educational settings, though he specializes in healthcare communication, especially palliative care, psychotherapy, and speech-language pathology. Much of his work has been done with many collaborators across the globe and often through funded projects from organizations like the Australian government's Department of Health, as well as the Australian Research Council. I was able to catch up with Stuart to talk about how he got into CA and healthcare communication, about some ongoing work that he's doing uh, that he's been doing in palliative care, including a recently published rapid review. And we also got to discuss some emerging research of his on healthcare interactions involving Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Hi, Stuart. Welcome to the State of Talk podcast. So so glad to have you. Uh, so glad that you agreed to come on. So glad to be here. Uh, so something that we like to ask people is, uh, first, how did you get into ethnomethodology and conversation analytic work? Through a somewhat circuitous path in my case, um, my academic home discipline is psychology, which is not the usual feeder discipline into conversation analytic research, although there are others who have worn that path before me. In my case, I did take a fairly familiar path from psychology to conversation analysis via um, an area of work known as discursive psychology, which was having quite a strong influence in the school where I did my undergraduate training at the University of Adelaide. Um, Around the time that I was an undergraduate, there really was that confluence between discursive psychology and conversation analysis to the extent where they were almost becoming indistinguishable from one another. Um, And I think that carried me uh, into conversation analytic work. Um, So in my case, when I came to do an honours thesis, it was very much a discursive thesis, a piece of discourse analysis. It involved semi-structured interviews, the kind that discourse analysts are very keen to use. Um, But I was starting to play with things that are very conversation analytic in orientation. So using the transcription system that's been developed within conversation analysis and starting to engage with that body of findings that have been developed within the field as well. And what that made me realise over time, even if somewhat belatedly, was that those sorts of things that conversation analysts were interested in were actually more interesting to me than the sorts of things that I was doing in the more discursive work. So probably a couple of months after I um, finished the thesis, I was looking back at it and I noticed um, just a little practice in one of the fragments that was included in the thesis um, that I'd not written anything about in the thesis, um, but I realised actually it was just like this thing that Tanya Stivers had published about a year before I wrote my thesis where she was looking at multiple sayings. In this case, it was a multiple saying in the thesis where the interviewer, me, had said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And it was used just as Tanya said, it was used to halt a a course of action. And what I started to realise and what I started to really kind of buy into was this idea 
that conversation analysts or this argument that conversation analysts make about um, the importance of studying these practices as building blocks for the sorts of bigger things that a lot of social scientists are interested in. And I became sold on that. So from the first day of my PhD, I was um, into the idea that I was going to be doing a conversation analytic study um, and not something else. Uh, and very rapidly then it became um, a conversation analytic study of healthcare where I've largely remained uh, ever since. Yeah, I, I was looking through your previous publications and also I had occasion to recall that I looked at your uh, dissertation on making arrangements uh, before and yeah, in going from, yes, I guess, psychological concerns to uh, conversation analytic concerns, how does one, yeah, what's the path that leads one to, to making, making arrangements? Because those are, you know, they're, uh, it's a specific activity, relatively large sort of package um, in, in talk. But yeah, could you say something about that? Yeah, I mean, I was, once I decided that I was interested in doing conversation analytic work, um, I got into a sort of a situation where I had both the blessing and a curse of not really having an idea of what I wanted to do beyond that. Um, so I knew that I was interested in um, social interaction generally. I found it inherently fascinating. It was something that I wanted to study, but I didn't really have um, something that I particularly wanted to study. Uh, and so in the end, my principal supervisor, Amanda Lecateur, got me out of that bind by suggesting that I think about topics that might be of interest to the broader public. And at that time uh, in Australia, uh, and indeed it remains the case, um, the ageing population was something that was of concern. Uh, so I ended up doing a project where we were looking at social interactions in the context of community aged care. But what happened then very quickly was a, a kind of tension emerged where I had to uh, decide whether I would be doing a, a study that contributed first and foremost to the conversation analytic endeavour. So look, investigating the types of um, fundamental things that conversation analysts are interested in, like action formation, or whether I would be doing something that addresses this broader social issue of the topic that I'd considered in this case, community aged care. And I think where I ended up veering was more towards that kind of foundational end of research. So one of the things that I just noticed immediately was that in these calls to community aged care services that I was studying, making arrangement was something that just happened all the time. In about one in every four calls, there was an arrangement to be made or rearranged. And so that led me down that path. And by the time I got to the end of my thesis, what I had was something that was very um, true to the, I think, to the foundational interests of conversation, of conversation analysis. Things like um, action formation, how arrangements are made, person reference, whether references are made to recognitional or non-recognitional reference um, and repair how you deal with a, a source of trouble that in this case persists for a very long time. And when I look back, there's actually very little in that thesis that addresses the potential translational aspects of the work that I'd done. And that's probably something that's changed a little bit over my career. So I'm now kind of progressively going back to Amanda's advice that I think about um, topics that might be of interest, not only to conversation analysts, but to other people in broader society as well. That's interesting. Uh, speaking of translational aspects, uh, yeah, looking through your uh, recently published stuff, you've, in the past few years, yeah, you've sort of been on a publication streak. It's, it's really sort of impressive, and especially the stuff that's 
reaching you know into conversation analytic adjacent fields and also uh, especially translatory work and yeah intervention stuff uh, and so i would be really interested in hearing about yeah where do you where does one begin with that kind of work not you know begin from nothing but how does one sort of transition from doing uh, as you were doing pretty basic fundamental work on the structures and actions of in conversation um, to then coming up with inter communication intervention studies for uh, specific uh, clinical groups. Mm. One of the things that it, it probably should have dawned on me sooner, but it didn't, it's only really dawned on me in recent years, is that some of the things that I think are of interest only to conversation analysts are also of interest to a, a, a wide variety of stakeholders, whether that might be healthcare clinic, uh, healthcare professionals or patients and family members. Um, so, for example, I can recall the day when I discovered that um, this whole field on epistemics that has been developing within conversation analysis is actually really important to um, paediatric palliative care clinicians, although they would never call it by that name, because they know that there is only so much that they as a clinician can know about their patient. And someone like a patient's mother or father could know, can know a lot of things about that patient that the clinician will never know. So the clinician, for example, is an expert on drugs, but the clinician might see that patient once every couple of months. The patient's family is an expert on that patient on those particular drugs. And they can tell the clinicians all sorts of things like what happens when the dosage is not enough to contain the patient's pain, or what happens when two different types of drugs are used at the same time over a prolonged period of time. So clinicians recognise that there is all this knowledge that's out there that they need to get access to, but they need to find ways of getting it out of people who don't regard themselves as an expert. And so very belatedly, I started to realise that actually some of the things that we do foundational research on are very alive issues for parties to institutional forms of interaction like in healthcare. Uh, and so now what I do, I try, well, at least I try to do a lot more, is think very carefully about what might, what might I do in my work that contributes not only to foundational knowledge, but also addresses issues that are of relevance to the broader public. Um, one area where that's really come to the fore, I think, in recent years is work on in the area of reference. So we know, for example, um, through things like uh, Nick Enfield's chapter in the Handbook of Conversation Analysis, that we know lots about certain uh, ontological domains, like how we refer to people, and we know less about other ontological domains, like how we refer to events. Um, so there's a clear need for more work on reference in conversation analysis. And one of the things that I realised I could do was look at how references to death were made. But that actually, that's an issue that has huge implications for clinical practice. Because when I went and had a look, which I did, um, we have clinical practice guidelines in Australia on how to communicate with people at end of life. And when I looked at the evidence that it was based on, it was all based on indirect evidence, those kinds of semi-structured interviews that I gave up doing about a decade ago. And nobody had actually looked at how people in clinical contexts were referring to death. So it struck me immediately that there was an intersection there between the basic or fundamental questions that conversation analysts are interested in and really applied stuff that has importance for policy, for practice, 
and indeed the way that people experience their healthcare. Um, so now I'm always on the lookout for that kind of stuff. Like not only like not only what will be of use or of interest to us as conversation analysts, but what might be of interest to others. And when I find it, that's when I get really excited about some of the work that we're doing. You had mentioned, I think for us uh, as analysts, a lot of times we kind of just get, you know, bur- we burrow ourselves into our little studies and our, you know, our square mm-hmm. millimeter of soil that we're tilling. And, you know, we lose sight of the, the fact that, you know, these practices, you know, to the extent that, you know, they're actual members practices that we are describing, that there are five issues for people. Um, and yeah, working with, I mean, a lot of our cases, working with the same videos and recordings over and over again can, I suppose, yeah, desensitize us to the fact that these are actual issues that are, are live to the people that we're studying. Um, I know you've worked um, a bit with uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait uh, populations. In your reference to death work, have you been primarily working with white Australians or I mean, I'm just interested in, you know, is there cultural category, categorical work that's going on there in terms of hesitation or reluctance or yeah, ways in speaking of, about death? Yes, I think the, the vast majority of the participants in our work on paediatric palliative care to date would be um, English speaking Australians, even if they're not, for example, um, from Australia, so we might have some migrant populations. They're all ones that would speak English as a first language, and we don't have a. We have some, but not a huge number of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families in that study. Um, but that certainly is an area where it's a. You know, the, the reason I've gone into it is because there was a. It's not a. It's not a. It's not an encounter that I've studied extensively, but. Um, there was an episode in one of our paediatric palliative care consultations where um, a family was gathering and the first thing that they talked about in the consultation was not the child patient, the child with the life-limiting condition, but it was the fact that there'd been a recent death that was prominent enough to be um, covered on, on a, a television station called NITV, which, is, um, which is, focuses on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues, the first thing that they talked about was the death of this prominent figure in the local community. And they talked about that for ages. And only then did they, they shift to talking about the, the child patient. And from what we understand about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, which I think is often very poor, that is consistent with how those cultures will often talk about, will often engage in conversation where they're not necessarily there to talk about one particular issue, but they will talk about a range of potential issues. And that has piqued my interest in whether we might see systematic differences between um, how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients engage in healthcare from um, other Australians. And so we are now just starting some studies uh, in pain clinics and in mental health settings where we're going to look at that in more detail. Recently, Stuart, I saw you published a paper with uh, a number of colleagues. It was this international publication that was a rapid review on palliative care, and it was a sort of looking at the most recent findings since I think of the previous review of CA work in palliative and end-of-life care was in 2016 or so. Um, and so I was interested, you know, these sorts of things, these, this type of article is not typical for conversation analytic audiences. And so, yeah, I was, I was wondering what the process of putting that together was like, and if you could speak to that a bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess then systematic reviews and more recently rapid reviews are um, 
not something that we are used to seeing in conversation analysis, but it is something that I was very exposed to in the times that I've worked in schools of nursing or schools of medicine. Um, so I can remember, for example, like um, about a decade ago when I was working at the School of Social and Community Medicine in uh, at the University of Bristol, um, it was a very pro like, systematic reviews were very prominent uh, in that department. So we had, for example, lining the halls, photo, photos, they're all black and white, of prominent figures in the history of medicine. My prominent figure outside of my office was Archie Cochran, who is the so-called father of um, evidence-based medicine. And one of the ways in which Cochrane's vision for evidence-based medicine has taken form is this idea that you need to systematically review uh, research evidence, mainly because clinicians just can't keep up with all of the, the research evidence that's coming out there. Um, so, you know, what I really liked about and, and what impressed me about systematic review methods when I was at Bristol was that, that people had put in, you know, serious thought into how you would systematically review um, databases to identify literature, how you would systematically screen them to either include or exclude them from the review, how you would use systematic tools to extract and then synthesize the information within those articles. You know, and about the time that I was staring at Archie Cochrane's photo, um, a bit north and further north from me in the UK, um, Ruth Parry and Vicky Land were working on developing methods that would allow you to systematically review conversation analytic and discourse analytic uh, findings. Because of course, what was developed to uh, synthesize the findings from randomized controls controlled trials isn't really going to work for the type of work that we're interested in. So I went away, left, left Bristol, moved to Brisbane. Uh, I probably didn't think about it for a while, although I, you know, I remained impressed by the review that, that Ruth and Vicky ultimately produced around how to communicate about uh, sensitive future matters. But then 2020 came around um, and the coronavirus pandemic shut down all of my healthcare projects because I could no longer step on to hospital campuses. So I was left casting around for some useful way to pass my time. Um, and it just so happened as well that, of course, the pandemic, unfortunately, increased um, the pressure on all of us to talk about death and dying. Um, and in some cases, it was increasing the pressure on clinicians who had not typically worked with dying patients to confront these issues. And so it struck me that a lot had happened in the field since that original review by um, Ruth and Vicky, and that it would be worth updating it. So I banded together with them and others, um, and we decided to update that review. It happened to coincide with a rise in what's known as rapid review methods, which recognise that sometimes you get events like a pandemic and you need, you don't have two years to produce a review like you would need with standard systematic review methods. So we started playing with some of those methods, like instead of having two reviewers who would blind screen all of the, the studies, we would just having one reviewer to do that. And that speeded things up. And it allowed us to produce this review that updates the findings of what um, Ruth and Vicky and others reported on in their earlier review. Now, what I like about that review is that I think it gives it packages up information for really busy clinicians during a very stressful time in the healthcare system that helps them understand all of the evidence that's currently available on how people talk about um, future sensitive matters, 
particularly in relation to illness progression and death. And I think we can help, we've been able to help them understand some of the complexities of that. So we're not necessarily saying it's simple, but we are helping them understand why certain things, they might have to talk in certain ways under certain circumstances and in different ways under other circumstances. So we tell them, for example, that sometimes there are contexts where it is appropriate to talk about end of life indirectly, but there are other times where you need to talk about end of life directly. And what I really like about that is that, you know, we are staying true to that, um, that conversation analytic um, emphasis on the context sensitivity of communication practices, while also helping clinicians understand why they might need to adapt their, the communication practices that they use. What I don't like about um, uh, systematic reviews and what I'd really like to put on the record as not liking is that, yeah, as a conversationalist, one of the things I love most is um, being able to see and hear social interaction. And you can't do that as soon as, you know, you're starting to, to extract transcripts from original studies. You're stepping away from, the, for me at least, I'm stepping away from the thing that I actually like most about the work that we do. Um, so as much as I think systematic reviews are really great for clinicians, um, I don't actually find them particularly enjoyable to produce as a researcher. So this is now, I guess, for at least conversation analytic studies, the second major review or assembly of uh, recent findings. And I wanted, I was hoping you could perhaps speculate, I don't know if it's foolish to do so, but why has, why do you think there's been such an explosion in, of work in this area? I, I saw, at least according to Google Scholar, uh, you started working on palliative stuff around 2015, or at least that's when something was published. And then, you know, if memory serves, it's also around the time I think uh, Ruth and others around, around Loughborough at, were also starting at the time. So, you know, was there some animating impulse for, for this? And uh, why do you think, um, yeah, if you could speculate, it's, it's grown so much over the past uh, uh, decade or so. I'm not sure if Ruth's ever told me why she got into palliative care research. Um, I, I'm pretty sure she got into it before I did. Um, and of course, then people like um, Becky Anderson have been doing it down at University College London as well. Um, and there are others whose name probably should come to mind that are not immediately coming to mind. Yeah, I don't want to say that. that's, that's, <laughs> I don't want to ignore. Um, yeah, there's been work in oncology that's been uh, palliative adjacent for mm -hmm. a long time. But yeah, I think as a sort of more well-defined sub area of work it, it, it appeared at least from my perspective it's come come around more recently yeah I mean in my case it was quite circumstantial and quite quite a pragmatic reason that I went into I was based I was employed by a, a professor of nursing who had an interest in palliative care so and when I started looking I realized well actually other than other than uh, you know this great body of work that's been done by conversation analysts in cancer so by people you know like Wayne Beach. Beyond that, there wasn't a lot on palliative care. And that struck me as really odd. And as soon as I started talking to people, they had in the field, they had no problems with us coming in and doing work. So uh, in that case, I think it was, it was a pragmatic impetus in my case. But once I was there, um, I discovered that there's all sorts of reasons to stay there. So yeah, at least if you believe the World Health Organization, Palliative care is supposed to have this holistic philosophy where clinicians are focused not only on 
the physical aspects of a life-limiting condition, but the social aspects, the emotional aspects, and even the spiritual aspects. They're supposed to be focused on caring for the patient and the patient's family. They're supposed to have this multidisciplinary approach to care. Um, and to the extent that I think that does play out in practice, and I do think it does, it actually creates a really fascinating uh, environment to do conversation analytic research because in some of the data we've collected, we have we have to grapple with these very large multi-party interactions where different parties have different reasons for being involved in the interaction. So you'll have different doctors, different nurses, different types of allied health professionals, maybe the patient, the patient's family members, the family members could be parents, they could be siblings, they could be grandparents. Um, and all of them have their own agenda for being there. They have different um, uh, domains of knowledge that they bring to bear on the consultation. And I think we've only barely scratched the surface on how that plays out in those interactions. And I think if we continue to scratch that surface, we will make contributions not only to these foundational aspects of conversation analysis that I keep talking about, which I think are really fascinating and really important, but also produce knowledge that has uh, implications for policy and practice. Uh, on that note, I was hoping you could also talk more about your, your current research. I know we've been touching on it here and there, but not uh, mm. in a you know really sort of dedicated way. Uh, you've worked, I saw recently, on um, agency in child uh, child care, or yeah, uh, pediatric palliative care, um, and yeah, the use of tag questions, for instance. I, I see on your website a, a number of different um, projects going on. So I'd uh, love to hear about how you, you know, the, the individual sort of studies that you're undertaking and also maybe how the projects uh, fit together in a kind of big picture way, or at least as you understand them. Yeah, so we just published a paper on um, how adults use tag questions in paediatric palliative care to orient to a child's epistemic access to certain bits of information. Um, and that really is part of a program of work that we're trying to pursue around how children are involved in um, these conversations that occur in paediatric palliative care, um, which are ultimately conversations that can profoundly influence these children. And we're interested in a context where most of these children are young, and so they might not necessarily have capacity to verbally communicate because of their age, or even if they're older, it may be because of their condition, they may have a neurodegenerative condition that means they also don't communicate um, verbally, although they may communicate vocally or through some other means. So across that diversity, we're interested in how children are involved in these consultations. And that remains a kind of big focus of work for uh, now and into the future. Uh, but I'm also mindful that um, other pro other teams of scholars around the world are working on more adult hospice and palliative care. So I've tried to open up a program of research on the same here in Australia, partly so we can integrate with that work that's being done by others, but also because I'm interested to understand with whether the things that we're observing in paediatric palliative care are similar or different in adult palliative care, because you get different circumstances where, for example, in paediatric palliative care, there is always a surrogate decision maker. It's always that you know, the parent is ultimately going to make the decisions about the child's care unless they somehow acquiesce to the child, whereas that's not necessarily the case in adult palliative care. So we're opening up 
um, that, that project in the hope that we might do further work that directly compares um, communication with and about people who have life-limiting conditions um, across the lifespan. And that, I think, um, for reasons that I've talked about a little bit already, is probably going to keep me busy for quite some time because I, I do think we've barely scratched the surface on, on the practices that constitute those interactions. But the other area that is progressively opening up for me um, is work on healthcare interactions involving Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients. So we've received some um, a couple of grants from the Australian government through different funding councils um, that uh, is being used to help look at communication um, in pain clinics and in mental health set, um, settings. So one of the reasons why um, I think it's really interesting to look at uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and how they interact in healthcare is because there is a major policy push to do it in Australia. We've been trying to do what the government calls close the gap between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and um, the remainder of the Australian population. One gap that we're trying to close is a terrible discrepancy in life expectancy. And clearly healthcare is one way to do that. Um, but the other reason I think to be really interested in it is that um, the term Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is a, is a somewhat inapposite gloss for a very heterogeneous group of people. You know, there are hundreds of different uh, Aboriginal groups, for example, that comprise uh, contemporary Australia. Some of them uh, live in very urbanised settings. Others in um, uh, others are people who live on their their traditional country. Um, there's been some great CA work that's looked at Aboriginal talk and interaction. You know, the, the kind of stuff that gets done by people like Joe Blythe, um, Alana Mushin, Rod Gardner. But most of that's on mundane talk and interaction. Uh, and it shows really interesting things like, you know, Rod and Alana have shown that um, Garoa speakers seem to have a much stronger tolerance of silence than Anglo-Australian speakers. But we have no idea what might happen when a Garawa speaker goes into a healthcare context where there's often not a lot of space for silence because a general practitioner might only have a 15-minute slot. So in the context of trying to close this gap between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the rest of the country, um, and in the context of really a complete absence of conversation analytic work that looks at how um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people communicate in healthcare, we're now trying to see what we can do by gathering data in this setting. But, and, you know, one of, one of the things that I'm a little surprised about when I'm approaching this, this new work on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is, you know, 50 years after Harvey Sachs made that comment about the importance of theorising with data so that we can see things that are not currently imaginable. 50 years after that, I still can't imagine what I might find you know, in that data now that I've started to collect it. And it just continues to remind me that, you know, the work of conversation analysis is not done. There is still so much work to be done. And that joy in kind of discovering things that we can't even imagine is still very much alive for us. Stuart, I really look forward to reading up all about that work. It sounds like you've got lots of amazing things going on. So th thank you again for uh, coming on to State of Talk. Thanks for interviewing me, Elliot.
The interview that you just heard is just one of the many things that we do here on the State of Talk podcast. Some of the larger goals of the publication committee with this podcast, our new website, social media presence, and our forum newsletter, is to generate discussion, collaboration, and excitement about the interactional discoveries that only can come from our kinds of naturalistic studies. If you have any ideas or would like to participate, please go to conversationanalysis.org and reach out to us. We'd love your input on what we're doing, uh, which is to establish a truly international connection between our EM and CA communities. Our theme music is Ethnomethodology by Peter Daniel off of the album Convulsive Listening.